Hey, welcome back to the Mountain Park Church podcast. As usual, my name is Andrew, and it is a pleasure to be connected with you today, wherever you're listening to this from, whenever you're listening to this, whatever you're doing right now. Um, I just want to remind you that our our heartbeat, the driving mandate of our church is to ignite a deep hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus in our lives. We believe that Jesus can literally change your life and that part of the good news of the gospel is the availability, the full availability of the kingdom of God for us today. Um, The work of Jesus, of course, begins with salvation, but continues into so many more um, aspects and realities of our life. And today we are talking about Pentecost, drawing some um, some conclusions about part of the purpose of Pentecost, looking at some Old Testament um, stories and events that are connected, I think, to Pentecost. And also we take our beginning dive into the gift of tongues as seen at Pentecost. And um, we start talking through a little bit of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 specifically. So we're gonna keep slowly plotting through this. And uh, I just want you to know too, that uh, I'm, we're trying to keep this very simple on a week-to-week basis. And one of the sort of things I wanna let you in on, uh, and this is just something that, that Jesus is, I feel like that he's inviting me into personally. This is not a commentary right now on whether or not, uh, like different preaching styles and you know whether somebody reads off a manuscript or notes or no notes or whatever, there's nothing, I'm not making a commentary on that, but in this season, I uh, have just sensed the Holy Spirit inviting me to not use notes anymore and to keep things as simple as I can remember them without needing complex detailed notes. I haven't always done that. For the last number of years, I've used heavy, uh, very detailed notes and um, I have, you know, supported sort of my public speaking with extremely detailed notes. And I'm not saying one is more spiritual than the other. I'm just saying the reason that uh, maybe you feel even the messages are, are a little bit more simple right now is because I, I'm just working through that challenge from the Spirit in my own life to um, to help distill things in a slower, more simplified, easy to understand and grasp way. So well, I'm going to continue to do that, which I find to be a challenge actually um, right now, even as I'm talking about things like tongues, I want to bring in like extensive references and I, I want to, I want us to jump through lots of different um hoops and I'm not able to do all that I am tempted to do. But I think I, I'm I'm just hoping that there's fruit in this and that you're able to digest and connect well with uh, what is what I'm talking about and how we're processing 
uh, these ideas and these biblical themes. And so I just wanted to sort of mention that you wouldn't know that because that's an internal thing that I've been just wrestling uh, with God on uh, and feeling like I just need to submit and trust him in a different way in my preaching and communicating in this season. I may go back to notes or even shift to manuscript kind of preparation. Those are great and have their their purpose. But for right now, that's why our messages, my messages have had sort of the nature and tone that they have. So without further ado, uh, this is our Pentecost Sunday message in this Foundations series. I want to read this chapter to you, and then we're, we're going to do our best to put Acts 2 in its proper context. And the proper context for Acts 2 is Old Testament. Everyone present on the day of Pentecost would have had an Old Testament framework working. So often we, we drag Acts 2 into our modern life, which is okay. We're going to talk about that. But those that were there in Jerusalem would have had an Old Testament framework going, which is good. And we actually need to rediscover, aside from God pouring out uh, the power and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, what was at work behind the scenes. So let's just read Acts 2, and then we're going to talk about a few things and make some observations this morning, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. So remember that Jesus had told them, go to Jerusalem and stay there. That's not random, and we're going to get into that. Jerusalem is just not just sort of like, you know, uh, the first thing that came to Jesus' mind. <laughs> Jerusalem is significant as a place, and we'll get into talking about this, but Jerusalem was, according to their, their worldview, their understanding of God, Jerusalem was the place of God's presence. That was the very place of his presence. So God, Jesus has said, go to Jerusalem. They're there, they're waiting, they're praying. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Just an anecdotal observation. Both in this description of the manifestation of God's presence and in the burning bush, we're introduced to God's presence as fire, but fire that doesn't consume anything. And I think maybe one of the reasons for that is that God doesn't need fuel. He is a consuming fire all on his own. He doesn't need something to burn up like the fire in your backyard or whatever. He is a consuming fire. He is self-sustaining. Just a thought. I'll leave it with you. So these 
tongues of fire really strange. Like if you, if you haven't grown up in a church context or whatever, you're already probably going, what in the world is going on here? It's going to get better or worse, depending on how you view things. <laughs> These flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. In some of your translations, it might say they were divided, which is a key, key phrase. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living. All right, so these um, Jewish men and women who had been... Um, who had been dispersed across the whole Roman Empire, across the known world, they were back for this festival. So there were Jews present from every tribe and nation. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. So that list there is very significant. That list represents the known world at the time. Minus one place, and we'll get into that. But that list, that table of nations represents the known world at the time of this writing. So there are Jews who have been scattered all over and they're back for this festival. And they hear those that were present in that upper room begin to speak in their native languages. This is human language now we're talking about. They stood amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And then Peter steps up and he begins one of the first and most powerful sermons since Pentecost. I want to make a couple of notes here. Like I said, this, we need to root this in the Old Testament. So God has no... Um, no desire to dislodge our faith even today from the Old Testament. He has no desire because this is post-cross to be like, oh, that's all useless junk. Let's not bother ourselves with that. This is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. I, wanna, I want to invite you to turn back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole chapter but Genesis 11 is the backstory to Pentecost, and it is the determining reality 
at play in God's heart for as to why Pentecost even happened. So we see in Genesis, we see this history of man being created. And, and like we've talked about, um, God created two realities, a spiritual reality and a natural reality. When Genesis opens, we're introduced to this dimension that God creates, which is the natural world, the known natural world that we live in. But Genesis, especially the first few chapters and the, the story of Eden is not just the, the heart and the purpose of Genesis is not to, to describe in scientific terms what happened. Genesis is a poem, historically. That's the genre of writing Genesis is. And one of the things that God is doing in Genesis is he's describing how he has created a human family in addition to the spiritual reality that's all around, that's already created. We don't know when he created that. But there are already divine spiritual beings in existence at the opening of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see the creation of and the introduction of God's human family. The Garden of Eden was not just a, a beautiful place with nice plants. The Garden of Eden was a divine meeting place between God and humanity. The, the functional purpose of the Garden of Eden was to be a place where God would walk with and commune with his natural, his material family. And we see through Genesis that that gets disrupted by the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. Again, we could take that several ways. What we know for sure, whether that was a literal talking snake or not, I don't know. That's not really necessary to understand the heart of what's going on there. What we do know for sure is that whether it was a talking snake or not, was a divine being. And most likely, if you look at ancient sources, we're not talking about a literal snake that slithers up in the tree and starts talking to Eve. We're talking about a divine being that is present in the garden with Eve. Notice how she's not startled by it. She's not all weirded out by it. It seems quite natural to her. So we see that Eden is a place where humanity and the divine intersect. And if you've kind of grown up in any kind of church culture or you know in Genesis 3, um, Eve is tempted and Adam are tempted to put their trust in themselves, to step in fear out in fear, and come out from under the leadership of God in their lives. And that introduces a whole bunch of stuff, brokenness and dysfunction and sin and death and all kinds of things, the, the outworking of the kingdom of darkness. And we make it all the way to Genesis 6, where things get so bad, God sends a flood. And there's one righteous person he can find, Noah and and you may or may not know that story, but God saves Noah and his family. Then after the flood, God repeats, he repeats what he had given to Adam and Eve as a directive. Go and multiply on the earth. 
be stewards of the earth. I'm calling you on behalf of me to rule and reign on the earth. And so God gives Noah the exact same charge and responsibility that he gave to Adam and Eve. Things go sideways again and the earth gets populated and we find ourselves in chapter 10 of Genesis. And in chapter 10, we have this sort of table of nations again. So remember in Acts 2, we read a table of nations, the known world. In Genesis 10, we're introduced to the table of nations that formed out of Noah's lineage, out of his sons. And then in Genesis 11, a story, if you were in Sunday school as a child, you've probably heard, we have the story of Babel. I'm going to just read a little bit. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. It's so interesting here. I just want to draw, I'm not going to make too much of this, but just draw a parallel. There's fire being used here as an instrument of the productivity of man. But there's fire that comes in Acts 2 that has a different source, and it's divine. It's a godly source. So they begin to make bricks. In the region, bricks were uh, used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Again, some ancient Near Eastern historical background. They were not building sort of like a skyscraper for architectural sake. They weren't just out there to go, hey, let's build a, a beautiful building that we can be proud of. Most ancient scholars believe what they were building was called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was a temple. And the purpose of a ziggurat was to be a place, a portal, a door-opening place for interaction with the divine. So these people, they gather together at Babel, and they're like, you know what? We're not happy being on sort of this receiving and responsive end of God. We're not happy being sort of on that receiving end of divine revelation. We want to be in charge. We want to dictate terms. We want to be able to say when we do and do not come in and out of God's presence. And so they begin to build this thing, this thing called a ziggurat. And the whole purpose of that was to be a place of divine communion where the supernatural and the natural meet. That was the whole point. The problem was their intention and their desire was to build it in obstinance to God. It was to say, hey, we've got a better way. We're going to go around you, God, because we know much better what we want to accomplish on the earth. We want to do it our way. We want to forge our own path. Don't you dare tell me how to live my life. And so we hear in this story that God comes and he confuses their language. And it says he scatters them all throughout the earth. That's what's happening in the natural. But there's a supernatural 
perspective that Moses alerts us to of what's going on in heavenly places while this is all going on down on the earth. Again, we've got to remember we live in a spiritual and a natural world. They're interwoven. They cannot be disconnected. Your life and my life, we're in constant interaction with the spiritual, whether we know it or not. And we can't pull those two apart. They're inseparable. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, we get Moses' perspective of what's happening in heavenly places at this very event in Genesis 11. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. And we're going to talk about your translation may have a few, there's a few different word variations that are really important to pick up here. When Moses had assigned lands to the nations, oh, sorry, when the Most High assigned lands to the nations, speaking of God, when he divided up the human race, back to Genesis 11. He established the boundaries of the people according to the number in his heavenly court. That's what my translation says. Your translation may, said, may say something like according to the sons of Israel or according to the sons of God. So here's what you need to know about that. If it's translated according to the sons of Israel, there's a very specific reason the translators chose that. And it comes from a very specific worldview. Israel was not a nation at the writing of Deuteronomy 32. There was no nation of Israel yet. So it actually can't mean the Israelites. In the Hebrew, it literally means the sons of God. But that throws a whole bunch of problems into the mix. What are you talking about, sons of God? I thought there was only one God. There's only Elohim. There's only one God. That's, doesn't that what Scripture say? In scripture, as a church, just to be clear, we believe in a monotheistic God. But Scripture paints this picture that God is not the only divine being. He's the only uncreated and perfect divine being. But God has created a divine family. And Moses is giving us a spiritual backdrop that God has supernatural divine beings that he has given charge and allotment of territory on the earth for. He's given it to them. He's divided up. In Genesis 11, the people are dispersed. And what Moses is saying is behind the scenes in heavenly places, God is looking at what we'll read next, his divine counsel of supernatural beings. And he's saying, I'm giving you charge over this people group and you charge over that people group. This is why when we get to Daniel 10, we are introduced to these characters like the Prince of Persia and these other divine beings who seemingly have divine authority over specific people groups. Why is that? Because Babel was not just about a human event. There was a spiritual reality going on. Turn with me to Psalm 82. 
And I'll connect the dots to Pentecost pretty quickly here for you. Psalm 82. Here's what Psalm 82 says. God presides over the heavenly court. He pronounces, okay, so we're linking now. We're linking Genesis 11 and Babel. We're linking Deuteronomy 32. And in God assigning territory to this heavenly court, these divine beings that are not perfect, and they're not like God, they're not uncreated, they're created by God, but they're divine nonetheless. In dividing them, he pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. And this is what God says, how long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Here's what God is saying. You are not governing the territories that I've given you according to my heart and my will. You're not governing the people that I'm giving you spiritual authority over. You're not governing them according to my heart. You're leading them into wickedness. And here is the backdrop to much of the Old Testament, much of the book of Joshua and judges as we see Israel in confrontation with the nations around them. That was not a, a physical reality. There was a spiritual reality going on behind the scenes and God is bringing judgment to the divine beings that are transgressing his heart and they're leading these nations away from him. They're leading them into further bondage and wickedness. And God, with his divine court around him, is saying, you're coming under judgment because you're not following my directive. You're not leading these people to me. You're leading them away from me. That's the, kind of the backdrop. And God goes on. Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are ignorant. They wander about in darkness. Again, this is a judgment to these divine beings. You are leading people into darkness, not into the light of my presence. They wander in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. This is God speaking again. Just a reminder. I say, and he's talking to these members of his divine inner circle. I say you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. I created you. You are my spiritual and divine family. But you will die like mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. So here's the spiritual backdrop of Genesis 11. This is what some scholars call God disinheriting the nations. Their nations of the world are coming under judgment from God because they are driving themselves to wickedness. God disinherits them. But then right away, I love this, chapter 12 of Genesis, what does he do? 
out of the heart of the rebellion, he calls Abram. And he says, out of your family, I am going to make a people for myself. And your family, Abram, your family will be the source of blessing to the world. That's where he begins to call Israel out through Abram's line. So he, he, he uh, scatters and disinherits this divine counsel, and he takes for himself a people. And that's what he's doing with Abram. Abram comes from the heart of enemy territory, from the very heart of it. And the very first thing God does, he says, I'm going right to the heart of this enemy territory, and I'm going to call a man to myself. And that man is going to be the fruit, the seed, the beginning of the blessing of God on the earth again. What God is beginning to do now is he's restoring He's beginning to restore on the earth his kingdom. And he's doing it through a nation in the Old Testament. Back to Acts 2. So why does this matter? Acts 2 is the inauguration of God now claiming back again each nation as his inheritance. Acts 2 is God moving now into human history, God moving now on the world and saying, I am going to reclaim every one of these rebel territories and I'm going to bring them back to me. I am now going to establish my kingdom on the earth and every part of the earth is going to be blessed because I'm calling the nations back to me. That's what God is doing on Pentecost. And every one of the disciples would have known it. Every one of them was waiting for the return of the 10 exiled tribes. Every one of them was waiting for God to inaugurate the reality of his kingdom on the earth again. And Pentecost is not just about this outpouring of cool gifts and weird stuff and like stuff we're scared of and all of that. That did happen. But Pentecost is the re-inauguration of the availability of the kingdom of God for every tribe and tongue and language and people group. It is God saying, look, you've been driven to wickedness by these unfaithful rulers I put over you, but I'm bringing judgment on them and I'm sending my spirit into every every part of the earth and I'm going to reclaim the earth for myself because his desire is to remake Eden on the earth again. His desire is to walk in communion with you. Ultimately, that's what God will do when he recreates the heavens and the earth. So this table of nations is a, in Acts 2 is a direct overlap of Genesis 10, minus one place, Spain and Tarshish. So you wonder why the Apostle Paul has this drive, this unquenchable drive to bring the gospel as far away as Spain, that the, the very edge of the known world in Paul's time, Tarshish was like the last outpost <laughs> Why, does, why is Paul so driven to make it to Spain? Because he knows 
what happened in Genesis 11. And he knows that things won't be finished until the gospel reaches every single disinherited people group, every single disinherited place on the earth. That is what drives Paul in his missionary evangelistic pursuit. It's not just sort of happy clappy. I just want to tell people about Jesus. He is driven to finish the task of bringing the kingdom of God back to every single one of those people groups. So we see tongues here, and we're going to start this conversation on tongues here. I have a little sort of thing that I whipped up for you on sort of what is going on, the different things going on at Pentecost in Acts 2. And I just want to show you that so you can see sort of visually what's going on in Acts 2. So Acts 2, again, like I said, is rooted in the Old Testament. The backdrop is in Genesis 11 and 12, 10 to There's a supernatural backdrop, which is Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82, which we read. Israel was God's portion. Again, why are they in Jerusalem? They're in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the very place of God's presence. That's his portion. That's God's allotted place. They're in Jerusalem because that is the very place where God's presence was. And all of the disciples would have understood this. This was not just sort of random, like, you know, where is, you know, Way's going to send me on this trip now? Like, let's just pick a random destination. They're there because that was the home base from which God was going to begin his activity in restoring his kingdom on the earth. That was home base. That was the place of his presence. So all of these disinherited nations from Genesis 11, the people are there in the natural. And the people were hearing the mighty works of God declare in their own language. The purpose of Pentecost was to inaugurate now the availability of the kingdom of God on the earth as God begins his work in restoring what had been lost and stolen by the enemy. What did John say in 1 John 3, 8? Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Pentecost was the inauguration of that on the earth and the movement of that away from a physical temple building location to you and I, the followers of Jesus, carrying the presence of God on the earth. So you and I, are walking in enemy territory all the time. We're walking in enemy territory. Again, we've got to remember this contrast. Scripture says the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But Jesus also acknowledges when he's being tempted by Satan that Satan is the present ruler of the world. So we gave authority to him in the garden. And God is slowly taking that back. Jesus stripped him of his authority and robbed him. But the whole earth is not filled with the glory of God in that reality yet. We're not walking in the living reality of that. We're walking in contested territory. So why did God pour out the gifts? He poured out the gifts so that we would have a supernatural means to advance the kingdom of God on the earth. 
He didn't pour the gifts out so we can have cool services together and we can pat ourselves on the back and we can have this like this emotional encounter. There's nothing wrong with emotion, but he didn't pour the gifts out so we can build big churches that, that just sort of navel gaze and look at their gifts and celebrate practicing together. He poured the gifts out so we would have a supernatural means to contest enemy territory. And that's why they're speaking in unknown languages. So the tongues that are present here in Acts 2 are human languages. But interestingly, so if you come from a cessationist background, a background that's taught you that the gifts are not present, that the Holy Spirit stopped working supernaturally after the death of John the last, like some of you may come from that kind of background, And maybe you've been taught that the only purpose for tongues in Acts, the whole book of Acts, was evangelism. But this is not evangelistic. When these people hear them speaking in their own languages, they're not evangelizing them. They're actually worshiping. They're declaring the glory of God over the powers and principalities and rulers and authorities. It's Peter who preaches and draws people in to the kingdom of God. But their tongues use here is not for evangelism. It's a a supernatural declaration of the most high's authority and glory and majesty over every dark space on the earth. That's what's going on. It's worship that is happening, not evangelism. Then Peter goes on to preach, and there's a huge group of people who give their lives to Jesus. So the, as we begin to talk about tongues, probably one of the most contested and, and arguably one of the weirdest gifts, one of the ones that is not used well sometimes in the church context. As a church, I want you to know we believe in the gift of tongues, in the use of tongues. That it's still a valid gift today that God uses. But we need to think of it rightly. And part of that begins with understanding this outpouring in Acts 2 was not just purely for evangelism. It was worship. They were declaring. They didn't even know it because they were talking in human languages to people as the Holy Spirit gave them power. So these were not people that had, you know, um, you know, degrees in other languages. They were not translators for the UN and other people that knew these languages. They were just normal everyday people who began to utter things in other human languages that they had no comprehension for. And then these people show up and they say, you're, you're praising and declaring the glory and majesty of God, and, but I can understand it. And that is still one of the valid ways that tongues is used today. That's still one of the ways that God works with it. If you've been involved in cross-cultural mission at all, most likely you've come across people, if not yourself, people that have encountered this divine gift, the ability to speak to somebody in a language you previously haven't studied or one that you know. That's one of the functions of tongues. All right, I'm not, are you with me here? I'm not sure if, uh, 
when in doubt, just keep talking, Andrew. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so let's, let's just fast forward here. All right, 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are Paul's teaching. Um, there's, other, there's other areas of other passages in Romans and uh, in Peter. There's, so there's other gifts, passages, Ephesians as well. Um, but we're going to camp here. This is Paul's instruction to um, the church in Corinth as they're learning how to follow Jesus together in the culture they're in. All right, now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Okay, so first definition of spiritual gifts, they're not natural. Spiritual gifts are not the things you're just good at. Spiritual gifts are not your temperament. They're not your, you know, your natural abilities. Spiritual gifts are divine supernatural gifts that are given to you in such a way that you would have no capacity to do that without the Spirit's empowerment in your life. All right? Number two, they come from the Spirit. They're not yours. They're not your gifts. They're not my gifts. They're His. And He dishes them out as He wants. He can give them and take them and he can do whatever he wants. They're not ours. We are just to be a conduit for the Spirit's work and movement in our life. So they're not natural and they're not ours. Paul goes on to say, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worship and in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We'll cover that a different time. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other, so we can bring the reality of the kingdom of God to bear in our families, on the streets of our city, in your workplace. They're given to you as a vehicle, a tool, a divinely given tool to give you the power and capacity to disarm and overthrow the power of the enemy, to help. They're not given to us so we can make them our identity and be narcissistic about it and build big ministries and kingdoms. They're not given to us so we can land TV contracts or build our influence. They're not given to us so we can, you know, generate a lot of buzz around us and, and get rich and wealthy off them. They're given to serve for the purpose of serving those around us, not for what we can gain from them. 
To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. We'll talk about all of these. The same Spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. That's a spirit of discernment. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. So we have here our first distinction in a different kind of tongue. So in Acts, they're speaking known languages to human beings. Here in Corinthians 12, Paul is saying there's another kind of tongue that is an unknown language which requires divine interpretation. So Paul here in, in 1 Corinthians 12 is not talking about you speaking in a known earthly language that you don't know. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about speaking in a language that is not human and could not be discerned or understood without the Spirit's interpretation of that in the life of the church. I want to just jump to 14, 1 Corinthians 14. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about chapter 13 being the foundational undergirding of how to actually operate in the gifts. But 14, let love be your highest goal. All right, he's linking back to 13. But you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. Okay, just a quick note on that. That's quite soft in, in our language, that's a command from Paul to pray for the spiritual gifts. That's not even an option. That's a command to the point at which you are sinning if you are not. Just let that sink in for a bit. I'm not leveling that as any kind of condemnation or accusation or judgment against you. I'm just saying what Paul is offering here is a command, an imperative command that is tantamount to sinning if we're actually not seeking the spiritual gifts of the Spirit. If we're not actively asking the Spirit for his gifting, according to Paul here, we're actually sinning. I found that very convicting in my own life. So here he goes again. If you have the ability to speak in tongues... Okay, listen to this. You will be talking only to God. This is now not Acts 2 tongues. This is a different species, if you will, a different kind. This is now a prayer language directed to God, not a human language directed to people. And Paul begins to talk about the right use of this in the corporate body. He goes on to say, you will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will be mysterious. People won't be able to understand you because it's not a human language. 
But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy is strengthening the entire church. And Paul goes on to say, I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you could all prophesy, for prophecy is greater. Some of you need to hear this one. Prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues. So again, we've done a disservice in the life of the body by elevating specific gifts over and above others. Tongues is very important, but it's not the bee and the end all. It's not the only bee's knees there is in the body of Christ. And in fact, it is subservient to the gifts of the prophetic in the local gathering. So Paul's not talking about a human language. He's talking about a prayer life directed to God. And he's now talking about how it fits well within the local gathering like we are here today. He says, I wish you could all speak in tongues. And then he goes on to talk about prophecy because it's understood, it has a chance to build people up. So he says, dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? I remember the first, one of the first encounters I had with this. Uh, when I was in Bible school on the West Coast, um, we would go to the Langley Vineyard Church. And that's where Brian Dirksen was a pastor and others were pastors. We would go there. And one of the very first times I got there with some friends, I'm like 19 years old or 20 years old maybe, this, like, we'd never been there. This woman runs up and she says, I just have a word for you. And she, she's like right in our face and she starts speaking in tongues and then she leaves. And I was like, I don't, I'm, what, what, I don't know what's happening. I'm a little Mennonite kid. I don't know what all this world is here. <laughs> Never heard this. Well, I had heard it at the Pentecostal Bible camp I grew up in as a kid. But there was interpretation there. And she just ran up and like, blah, 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 and then, then leaves. That, let me just agree with Paul. That wasn't helpful. <laughs> so that didn't help me in any way, Right? And so there's a, there's a measure of discernment we have to use with all of the gifts, and this would be one. We need to figure out, God, okay, what, like, right now, is this, is this, like, is this a moment where I'm communing with you, and I'm having dialogue with you in this unknown language? Or is this, a, is this a moment? Are you inviting me to bring this to the whole body because there's something that you want to say to everyone? And this is why Paul goes into some instruction on how to use this well. He's like, you know, if somebody walks in and everybody's speaking in tongues all at the same time, the person who comes in who doesn't know what's going on is just going to think you're all weird and crazy. But if they come in and people are speaking prophetically by the Spirit, then he says later on in 14, then it could be that even the unseen, the unknown realities of their life are coming to the surface and there's conviction that comes because people are speaking prophetically about the hidden and secret things of their life. That's fruitful. 
Paul goes on to say that's why he connects the corporate use of tongues with interpretation. So again, we've got to be balanced in how we view this. Is Paul saying it's sinful to pray in tongues in a personal prayer language to God without interpretation? No, he's not saying that. He's giving us a best practice solution for what we do in order to gather together and build each other up. So there's some people that look at this sort of prohibition and anytime they hear a tongue in, in a church environment, and often it's maybe more of a Pentecostal church environment, when they hear somebody even from the platform or leading worship or a pastor, when they hear him praying in tongues, they freak out and they're like, there's no interpretation. This is wrong. This is sinful. No, just chill out. It's okay. There can be many environments, many small environments that you're in where everybody is on the same page and they all know what's going on and you're free to do that. But we have to be discerning. If not everybody here has the understanding you do, you actually do a disservice to the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God because you're walking them into places that are confusing to them. And so it's not that the churches that you would hear that in practicing are doing something sinful. For them and their culture, they've just decided that that's okay. And so Paul is not giving a prohibition here that's like, you can never do this. And No, he's just saying contextualize where you are. Allow the Holy Spirit to be your discernment antenna and go, oh, is this... You know, like, is this going to be distracting right now from what God is doing in the room? Or is this like, I need to step out in faith. I think God wants to bring an interpretation to this, so I'm going to offer this in humility. I was listening in this last week to one of my favorite leaders. Um, it's a gentleman named Jack Deere. And he was talking about the reality when we enter into these spaces of the spiritual gifts, and using them, we actually have to embrace failure. We have to. We actually have to have the humility to be willing to fail in front of others in order to develop and grow these things. And so as a church, our heart is not to shut that stuff down. Our heart is to, to give it a right avenue and a right channel. If you feel during worship or at different points in the service. We took some time last week. Nobody had one. But if you feel like God has given you something to say to the whole body in tongues, come and talk to us. We want to help you discern that. You know, I, I, during worship, most of the time, I'm worshiping in tongues. You can't hear it, right? Which is kind of the point, <laughs> It's just for me. It's for my edification and my building up. So just as we are kind of, we're going to continue this conversation, but there's just a couple basics about the, the gift of tongues um, that I want to cover. And again, there's, some, there's different schools of thought out there. Uh, we have to hold this stuff with humility and gentleness and grace. None of us has the 100% infallible perspective on this. Um, but I have just a, a, 
a little graphic for you to see in terms of what tongues are for and why we have them. So if you could throw that up there, that would be great. So again, just to recap, what are tongues? Number one, the capacity to supernaturally speak in another human language. Okay, so that happens today around the world. Number two, tongues are an unknown. They're a non-human language. That is a prayer language directed to God. There's different theories out there, and they're all just theories. There's different theories on, on exactly what that is. Some people believe that God gives each person their own specific and unique tongue language that he alone knows and understands. And apart from the Spirit's revelation, nobody else would ever understand either. Some people would believe that we, there, there's just these two general large categories that we work in. I don't know. It doesn't really matter either way, in my opinion. So the, what is the purpose of tongues? Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, there's a few. Number one, prayer to God. The Spirit enables us to communicate with God in prayer, things that our mind can't. So he says, if you're speaking in a tongue, your mind is what? Unfruitful means you are bypassing your mechanism of logic and reason and rationale in order to speak with God in this unknown language. And that's okay. We've made a bit of an idol out of our intellect and rationale. So one of the purposes is prayer to God. The second is edification or strengthening. This is something that spiritually edifies those who do it. It's something that strengthens you. And number three is praise or warfare. This is now, um, you know, there's the capacity there for not only praise, but now we're linking into Ephesians 6 where we're praying by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, things may, we don't know what it is, but God is bringing us into a place of resisting and standing firm and contending for our family. So my story with this, and I'll just kind of close with this, and we could do questions too. Um, my dad is saying, don't do it, Andrew. <laughs> I'm okay. I don't know why everybody gets so nervous about that all the time. I have nothing to hide. And I don't know all the answers, so I'm okay to admit that too. But um, so my own story with this was in my late teens. I was doing um, a bunch of um, mission work after Bible school. I did a whole bunch of short-term mission stuff. And God was giving me a real burden for my family. And specifically at that time, my extended family who were going through a lot of stuff. And I got really frustrated with the limitation that I was experiencing in knowing how to pray for them. I just, I felt like I was hitting a wall and like, I'm, I'm sure there's got to be something more effective, God, than the same thing I keep saying every day. And so I went on this journey for about a year of saying like, I... I want to be able to pray in the spirit to you. I want to be able to contend for my family in spiritual places in a way that maybe, I don't know, maybe is more powerful or effective. 
And I prayed every day for that, and nothing seemed to happen. About a year into this, I met with uh, my mentor's mentor, and he sat down with me and did about six hours of teaching on this because he didn't want to pray for me. He didn't want to impart something that I didn't know how to use. So about six hours of teaching, and then he said, all right, we're going to pray. And we did, and he said, now talk, but not in English. And I said, what are you talking about? So I talked, and it was in English. And he said, no, pray, but not in English. And I said, I'm trying, but it's coming out in English. <laughs> and he's like, all right, we'll be patient. And he's just like, just, we're sitting in like his Honda Civic car doing this one night in, uh, in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And uh, he's like, and we go back and forth like three or four times. Andrew, not in English. Okay, I'm trying. Dear Lord, Andrew, not in English. Father, I just, Andrew, not in English, right? Over and over. And all of a sudden, I just started talking, but not in English. He said, okay, that's, this is the beginnings here. And he taught me sort of what to do. And he said, the first thing I want to call you to do is begin to read Scripture, but speak in tongues out loud as you're reading Scripture. Because there's a disconnect, our mind's unfruitful. So this is a mystery to me, but you can read something and intellectually receive it, but be saying something totally different out loud. You can't do that in your known language. You can't read something and speak in English, something that's not even related. Your mind can't separate the two, but it can with tongues, apparently. And so he gave me some instruction for how to develop that. And that's been a gift in my life that I've used over and over every day every day in one way or another. And sometimes that gift comes out in, in a, like a, uh, when certainly it's in my car and nobody's around, comes out as like a, a warfare, like a violent almost confrontation. That God sometimes calls me into spiritual warfare with tongues. And that's just one of the ways that that, that comes out. And sometimes it's in just moments of just devotion and I'm overwhelmed by the goodness and the love of God that, that comes out. And I, like I said, often when we're worshiping, I'm praying in the spirit. And so there's different, there's different ways that we've received it. Some of you receive that gift and like you, there was no initiation on your part. It was like, this just kind of came from heaven and like, it's here. <laughs> what do I do with this? What is this? Which is amazing. And so there's different, different mechanisms that we have all encountered and experienced that were the initiators of this. But I want to challenge you with this just as we, as we close today. We're going to keep talking about this. Um, we haven't even got into the gift of interpretation and other things, which we'll talk about. There's... There's a big debate and big questions out there. Are tongues for every Christian or just some? And I want to just tell you with humility, I don't actually know. I, I would be like 52%. I think that everyone at least has access to that. 
but I don't want to be dogmatic about that. Some of you have prayed for that and have not seen that happen. We need to, again, hold this stuff with humility and grace. There are some people that are dogmatic, like, no, it's not for everyone. And it's a specific gift, like all of the rest of them. And there are valid arguments on both sides of that. And that, I don't want to make that the issue in our church. If it is a spiritual gift that you long for, start praying for it. Ask the Spirit. We'll pray for you. We'll do it right now. But tongues, like all of the gifts, are not measures of spiritual maturity. They're not measures of holiness. They're not measures of authority even. I know some horribly ungodly people that can speak in tongues. That's not, and any spiritual gift is not an indicator of a, a different level of holiness or righteousness. They're not. They are gifts given to us by the Spirit to bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. And tongues is one of them that God uses today. Whether his intention and, you know, Paul's intention was that you should all, you all do have access to this, I don't know. But Paul said, I wish you all did this. And Paul bragged about tongues. I'm thankful that I speak in tongues more than any of you, he said. It's not a gift to hide. It's a gift to use rightly in the corporate body. But it's not something to be ashamed of. And this is the enemy has had a heyday with this particular gift in the life of the church. And if you're even here today and you're like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. I have no experience with this. It's okay. <laughs> um, this is just a vehicle that God uses to help us bring his kingdom to bear in our lives and our families and on the earth. So there's much about the gifts that we don't understand. But that's not and should not be an inhibitor to our desire to seek God to ask him for the good gifts that he longs to pour out on his church, on his people. And I think the beginning place of that, and we'll talk about this later, is to set our attention on actually asking the Holy Spirit, like, like Brenda mentioned today, our attention on asking the Holy Spirit to fill us and refill us and renew us. Like Brenda mentioned, I don't believe the baptism in the Spirit, whatever language you want to use, is a one-time isolated event. And some of you experienced something decades ago, and you're trying to live off of that old, stale baptism experience. And God is saying, I want to immerse you in the life of the Spirit today. I want you to encounter my presence again in powerful ways. Don't just keep going back to the good old days when such and such happened and when so-and-so did whatever they did. God has a spirit-filled encounter for you today that he wants to pour out on your life. And so I'm just going to ask, there's no, there's no shame in here. And Liz, if you want to come, uh, you can. But there, there's absolutely no, 
No shame, no judgment, no anything. I have two questions for you. Number one, I just feel like Jesus inviting me to take a risk of my own and humility And um, if you legitimately want to experience uh, maybe a new or a renewed or a deeper work of the Spirit in your life, I think that there is access to that, that it's the heart of God for us on a regular basis. You don't have to want that today. That's okay. Again, there's no judgment here. But if that is something you're interested in, I'm gonna ask you to stand in just a minute. But first, I was gonna reverse these, but I just sense the Spirit saying not to do what I think I wanna do. First, if you've wanted the gift of tongues and have maybe been praying for it, and would want would want to be prayed for for that I want to invite you um, I want to invite you to stand if that's something that you would like again there's no judgment here in any way but there's always a cost in the kingdom. There always is. And so if you want that gift, I'm not saying that you're gonna get it right now, but if you're, if you're longing for that or interested, I, I wanna invite you to stand. Here's the thing, authority in the kingdom doesn't just sit in me, it sits in you as part of the body. And so here's what we wanna do. There's a laying on of hands that is part of the process. And this is, I, don't, I could be wrong here. Um, I'm, I'm open to that. I just am sensing the spirit say, Andrew, it doesn't have to be your hands that do the laying on but that actually, this is part of him wanting to recapture the life of the body and not just a bunch of paid pastors doing everything. So if someone is standing around you, can I ask that you stand and just lay hands on them? And, and I'm just gonna ask Holy Spirit that you would purify um, the hands that are being laid on. And I'm just gonna pray like this publicly for one second. Father, we just dedicate ourselves to you. Jesus, we bring ourselves under the authority and the covering of your blood. I command all unholy power that is present right now, any uh, unclean spirits that have rights or access to anybody's life, even those who are laying hands on, I now just cut you off from your source of power. I suspend your rights and authority and I forbid you from interfering in any way 
with the desire or the heart of the Spirit of God for those being prayed for right now. Father, it's not about us, it's about you. And so we just ask that you would sanctify and purify your people now, that you would use your body for impartation now in the name of Jesus. And so we're just in humility this morning. We're just taking you up on your word, Father. And you invite us to ask you, to ask you for your gifts. And so I'm asking with my friends here, I'm asking Holy Spirit that you would pour out and release on those here the gift of tongues. I'm asking that you would do it. I'm asking that you would give them a language to commune with you and to, to abide with you and to speak to you that is heavenly in origin. And if you are standing and you are one of the ones who's asking for that, I just, I want to invite you just in quietness now, just to say, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you now to pour out on me the gift of tongues. Just ask him. We don't have to manipulate anything. The Holy Spirit is not insecure. He doesn't need a show around him. He doesn't need a whole bunch of stuff. He can work in power without our adding anything of our flesh to it. And so I just wanna ask you, Holy Spirit, you are good and you are faithful. Would you pour out the fruit of your kingdom presence and those that are here. Would you pour out your gifts today? Not because we deserve them, not because we're holy, not because we're better than anyone else, but because you are good. You are a good Father who is longing to empower his people to carry his kingdom on the earth today. Father, would you give us fruit of the kingdom now in the name of Jesus. And if you're here and maybe you're not interested in tongues or you have that's a gift you have but you are wanting just to experience a new filling of the spirit, I want to invite you to stand just as we close. And I want to just pray together with you. So if that's something that you're interested in again, there's no shame, there's no anything with that. I wanna pray together for us all together this, this morning. We don't have to do a fire tunnel for this, as fun as those are. The Holy Spirit is not restricted in any way. And so Holy Spirit, would you inhabit your people in a full, overflowing measure this morning. Would you fill us again today? Would you fill us again today with your presence? Would you pour out your mercy and your goodness in your life? Would you fill us with the fruit of your presence? Would you fill us with the gifts of the fathers in our kingdom? Would you fill your people today again 
with strength and power from on high. Would you fill us again with hope again? Would you fill your people again with your presence? Would you come and manifest yourself in our midst again? We don't wanna be people who walk in human strength alone, but people who walk carrying the strength and power and authority and anointing and calling of the Spirit of God who is in us. And so I just, I just call out to you, Spirit, Holy Spirit, just fan into flames the reality of your presence in your people this morning. Would you stir up a deep hunger and longing for the presence of God? Would you stir it up, fan it into flame this morning? And in Jesus' name, I just speak to every human spirit present here. Would you fling wide your gates and open up the doors and let the King of glory come in. The Spirit of God doesn't need a revival of hype. He's more interested in obedience in small things than in superficial acts of sacrifice and big ones. And his invitation to you and I today is to just live in an unbroken, unbroken river of his presence. He's inviting you to walk deeper into the river of his presence and live in an unbroken fellowship with him. If you're here today and can't, you're just wrestling with guilt or condemnation. I want to just invite you. I want to invite you just to say, Jesus, I receive your grace today, your mercy. And I just ask Holy Spirit, what is it you want to say to each person present here? We just invite your voice. What is it, Holy Spirit, you want us to know? I ask that you'd speak individually to each person. What do you want them to hear from you today? Father, we, again, we humble ourselves before you. offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice today. I just pray for a renewal of devotion to you. Would you rekindle that first love? Maybe we haven't experienced your presence in years or decades. Rekindle that this morning. We want to be a people of your presence, not of hype, of your presence. So we invite your leadership in every way.